powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to friends, foes, and neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings because what you're about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show. Prepare yourself for pop culture, commentary, and interviews featuring no drama and no controversy guaranteed. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Productions Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Hello, Duvall Nation. Hello. Hi, everybody. Wow. Thank you so much. Hi. Hey, thank you so much. Please, everyone, please sit. Thank you. Hello, Duvall Nation, and welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. The Dollar Clown to you all. We are back with another fantastic journey into the lives of extraordinary people. Before we get into this episode, though, I want to say from the bottom of my heart a massive thank you to the legendary Howard Blake. What an incredible life and an even more amazing career. I want to thank him and I want to thank Emmett for being such great sports and for moving mountains to make that interview happen. Folks, if you haven't had a chance to listen to it, I encourage you to do so after the conclusion of this episode. All right, so welcome to episode 111, 111. <laughs> That's fun. We have a new type of guest on the show today and a career we have never explored before. We have on the show Andy Fry, a very popular sports journalist and an accomplished author. Andy will be talking about shaking off the shackles of corporate life and how he became an in-demand sports writer, interviewing some of the biggest names in sports. Want me to name drop? How about Tom Brady right out the gate? I know, right? Anyway, we'll be talking about his new book as well, 90 Days in the 90s, A Rock and Roll Time Travel Story. Folks, Andy is a great guy, and we had a great, great conversation. Lots of fun. Let's go ahead and get him on out here. Duval Nation, please rise to your feet and welcome all the way from Chicago, Illinois, sports journalist Andy Fry. Andy, hello. Welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. How is the weather out by you today? Well, I'm in Chicago. I just got uh, Chicago cold starting, you know, somewhere either like between last night or early this morning. I'm going to walk my dog uh, in the morning, so I'm hoping it's either not too early that he wakes me up or that it's warmed up a little bit, but I could be uh, shit out of luck on both. We'll see. I went to boot camp uh, in Great Lakes during the winter, and I'll never forget how cold Chicago can be. That was something else. Yeah. Yes, yeah. it doesn't get quite as cold anymore because I think because of climate change and we do like we don't get negative 20 for a month at a time anymore. We still get strangely leaves falling from trees in December. But yeah, I mean, it's definitely not uh, it's not Florida or Texas as far as the weather goes this time of year. So when I look to get away, when I get a chance to get away, like when golf starts and in, in the uh, in the well before the spring, like in February or if I get to go to a NASCAR race, like sometimes I get an exit visa out of here for a sports related reason while it's you know freezing cold and that's always nice nice so i start my interviews off with the same question that is how has it been for you to navigate the covid19 pandemic so far well I, it wasn't that bad for me i mean none of us got sick um we, I, you know i live in a place well so my wife is a psychologist which is you know it's not the same thing as being a nurse or anything but i think we were just pretty much on board with the whole social distancing and just keeping it safe and I remember uh, it It really hit, I want to say it was probably 
um, on or maybe the day after St. Patrick's Day, because uh, I remember that week, my kid who's in high school now, but was finishing up eighth grade. I think he had Friday off and then they kind of go into this, you know, uh, it's extended week into Easter or their spring break. And it, basically they said, you know, go home and don't come back Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So from there we were locked in, you know, it was a little uncertain for a while. Uh, my wife is a psychologist and she got to do like her business had a her practice had a blip for about a week. So like, I, you know, we, I'm lucky we didn't suffer financially. We didn't get sick. Not like my mom and dad who are obviously, you know, senior citizens are, are fine. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, I, I can't really complain about how it was for me and I'm not really a complainer anyway, but yeah, I mean, in March, it was like, okay, there's no sports. What am I going to write about? Cause I write about free, you know, freelance writer contributor for Forbes. Uh, so it got, I had to be kind of creative. I, I think I did an article or two about like, what are the athletes doing at home with COVID? And, uh, I got to interview both, um, Sue Bird and then her partner, Megan Rapino after that. And I basically said like, what did you guys do during the pandemic? And I think they just happened to be, in Connecticut, because Sue Bird is playing, she plays in the East Coast, but obviously, you know, when soccer's in season, Megan plays for the rain in Seattle. And, you know, so they got basically stuck in the East Coast and it was walking and working out every day, watching Tiger King. So I got to have those conversations, like basically you're having with me now with athletes, like, what are you doing? Oh, I'm walking my dog 12 times a day, or I adopted a dog. I heard, heard about that. I got to talk to Haley Deegan, and she's a, one of the up and coming race car drivers, and she, I think it was the second time I talked to her, like she had adopted a puppy as, as did millions of people during that time. So I can't complain, you know, it was a little, little weird for a week or two. And then obviously being indoors and not going to bars and restaurants, that was strange, but you know, there's an alternative reality that I, I think I did fairly well in. So um, I'm glad that I got through it, not sick and not losing anybody, but you know, some things came out of it. And I think the byproduct uh, relative to what you and I do is that everybody uses zoom now. So what does that mean? Well, I think it's because everybody used Zoom that I got to do a Zoom interview with Shaq and uh, some other really great athletes. And, you know, before it was like I was relegated to the phone and the audio was terrible. I, I was happy to do those interviews, but it kind of opened up a new world. and We practice and communicate differently. So, they, yeah, there's just some interesting stories that came out of it that were sort of serendipitous and random that just have to do with the way that our lives changed during COVID. So that's my long answer. I, you know, I did well. And some things, interesting things happened after that. And, you know, um, I hope everybody else out there listening to this, you know, hopefully came off as unscathed as I did, but I know not everybody you know, had as much of an easy time with it. Fair enough. So every journey has a beginning. Where were you born? What was it like to grow up there? Well, I was actually born in West Memphis, Arkansas, just right across the river from Memphis. My dad uh, worked in heavy industry for a while. He's a marketing guy. So um, I think he was stationed in uh, Arkansas for two or three years. And you know, after there was a chance to, to move, I, I guess in the early 70s, Eastern Arkansas was not really that interesting if you weren't from there. So I didn't really grow up there. Um, grew up in Pennsylvania and suburban Philadelphia. Lived there my whole life until college and after college moved to Chicago. And I've, I've actually spent more than half my life in Chicago now that I'm, you know, I'm, I just turned 50 in April, but I've been here since 1994. So there's really been two places I've lived in my life and, you know, that can kind of make for some interesting uh, sports fandom things. But you know, I grew up in, in suburban Pennsylvania, suburban Philadelphia in Pennsylvania. And, you know, it was just kind of like a suburb. Like I grew up in a place where in 1978 or nine, when we moved to the one house we lived in a while, for a while, it was, you know, open fields turning into business campuses and insurance buildings and, 
there's no traffic. And now my friends who still live there that I talk to still complain about the traffic that it's really filled out as, as a lot of places in suburban America that were, you know, in the 19, late 1970s, there was a McDonald's, maybe a dentist, a couple of stores, you know, an insurance building or a couple other places where people would work and not much else. And obviously the, you know, there's a lot of places to play on construction sites when I was a little kid, but they went away and probably in, you know, just in time to, to keep me safe and watch me grow up. But yeah, I mean, I consider myself more of a Chicagoan now because I've been here for more than half my life. Do you uh, share the misery with the Chicago Bears? You know, I'm not really that much into the NFL, and I am more of an Eagles fan. Um, yeah, it's the, the Bears are just – I was supposed to talk to somebody um, at WGN about this, about just I, – I know I'm going to get asked about the Bears, and it's like every year they do the same thing. They can't score them more than three touchdowns. They still get schlacked by the Packers. It's not really been too much uh, different since they are really good in the mid-'80s and the 85 Bears, but – yeah, don't follow them too much. I'm basically not going to waste an evening watching the Chicago Bears because I'm not that into it. I caught part of the Dallas Eagles game last night, and it's always great to beat Dallas if you're an Eagles fan. So I'm more into the Cubs, as you can you can see behind me. I know that no one else is watching this, but you see a fat head behind me of the uh, the green uh, manual board at Wrigley Field, the, the one they still actually like hand hand put numbers in, and that's kind of my my chosen sport here in Chicago. And I've, you know, I've had season tickets. I've followed them inside and out, and was obviously. Uh, really happy when they finally won a world series in 2016 that was a great day yeah. you know you, it's funny you say uh there's three little words you use in that sentence it was wgn and <laughs> i have the highest respect for wgn the reason being is when i moved to america in 1990 never knew who michael jordan was never knew who chicago bulls were yeah and uh, we had some neighbors who were from chicago and they said well you gotta like you know if you're gonna come to america you gotta be a bulls fan and uh -huh. wgn was the local affiliate here in tulsa and so we got all the Bulls games, uh, all the televised Bulls games. And that's how I became a, a Chicago Bulls fan. It's just purely because we had access to that, you know, those games every night. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah I think that's what there's a lot of Cubs fans. A couple of years ago, so actually in 2016 in, in the uh, spring, it must have been, I think it was about spring training because I was, I, I got to, so we did a family trip with some other friends and we kind of bit the bullet and decided to go to Punta Cana and spend a little bit of money. It was great. I remember like getting up. I am a terrible sleeper. I got up uh, really early because I couldn't sleep. And this is one of these resorts where like there's food 24 seven. So anyway, I go to this like breakfast nook at like 520 or something. And there's a family of three. And this, this guy is decked out in a Cubs hat. He's got a Cubs watch. And I'm like, oh, you're from Chicago. And I think they were up that early because they had to catch their flight soon. They had to go to the airport. But uh, I was just, it was my second day there. And the guy's like, no, actually I live in Arizona. And I'm like, oh, are you, are you from Chicago? No, no, I live in Arizona. I've been in Arizona my whole life. So I'm thinking like, okay, so he's, he must be by where they play spring training, but no, he's actually, you know, an hour and a half from there. But this is like, so why do you follow the Cubs? And he said, but you know, kind of what you said about the Bulls, like WGN Superstation and the game's always being on. And I guess he was probably roughly my age. And I, you know, it's probably in high school when, there were day games and as friends of mine who grew up here have described it. And I wrote about this once is that you'd come home as a latchkey kid. If you're, you know, Gen X kid going to high school in the, in the eighties, late eighties, and you would turn on the Cubs and you would feel like you were babysat by Harry Carey watching. Maybe, maybe you'd catch the fourth inning. You'd watch the last couple of innings of the game, whether they won or not, you were kind of dialed in and yeah, Harry Carey was your, your babysitter and or maybe Mark Grace was. So I was kind of fascinated by that because I, I heard those stories, but the, I think it was the first time I ever talked to 
a Cubs fan who was like has never you know had been to Chicago once, had never didn't really have a reason to be a Cubs fan. Like I know that there are uh, people who are not from Manchester or Manchester United fans. You know, like we're all over the place, all over the place in, Eng- in England. Yeah. So it's kind of like that, except we didn't win as much as Man United did. Um, you know, we won a little bit a couple of years ago, but yeah, it's it's kind of an interesting cultural phenomenon. And that's one of the things I write about as a sports writer. Like I do interviews with athletes and um, sometimes coaches, and I'm, I'm fascinated with sort of the social aspects of sports because I think there's so many interesting reasons why people follow sports, why they, you know, they choose to support a team because sports is just kind of alive and ever growing. So I have a question, uh, just a follow-up question. Uh, at Wrigley Field, when um, Pearl Jam comes to town, does Eddie Vedder still sing? Sometimes we'll go all the way post World Series win. Yeah, you know, um, I I'm not a huge Pearl Jam fan, but I did go the last time. I think it was the last time they were here. Uh, in it's, it's strange. I interviewed. Uh, it was a. It must have been like yeah, the summer of 2018. I had interviewed Adam Wainwright, a lifer cards pitcher who hates the Cubs. And we talked about that. And then I go to Wrigley Field. I had a friend in town from New York who is a 10 club member. He's been to 50 Pearl Jam shows. I think he had just broken up with his girlfriend. He's like, hey, I'm going to be in town on Monday night. You want to go? I'm like, yeah, sure. So I went. Um, we, so in, in a baseball way, you know, like I sat in probably the 23rd row, shallow left center field, to put it, you know, mildly. And yeah, like he, he I think he's, he sang that. He brought Chris Chelios out on stage. He talked a bunch about, you know, when he's going to retire from Pearl Jam, he wants to be, wants to work the scoreboard. And he's, you know, he, he worked it out with Theo and the management that they're going to have a job for him after he leaves Pearl Jam. So that's like a whole experience too. And I kind of wonder if the other guys like, does Stone Gossard or Jeff, Jeff Ament get sick of hearing about the Cubs and Cubs and Cubs <laughs> when they're touring with Eddie or I don't know, he's, you know, watching the game during sound check or something like that. Like I kind of wonder, but it's great that he's so on board. And uh, no, I didn't see this, but you probably heard the story or read the story uh, that was in Rolling Stone about him busking outside Wrigley Field one time um, when they had, uh, I think he was in town early, like a week earlier, and then the Pearl Jam shows were the next week. And then he was just like, yeah, he's, you know, out with his guitar strumming and obviously people want to take pictures with him and all that fun stuff. But that's awesome. Yeah, that's uh, definitely, um, you know, they're almost like a... uh, you know, I don't know if the, the Lakers and the Clippers play in the same place, but it's kind of like the, the Cubs and Pearl Jam play in, in the same stadium. It's like home ground for, for both of them. That's awesome. So yeah. moving on, do you have any favorite memories from Miami University? Uh, it's interesting. You know, I just went back there, <laughs> stopped in Oxford on the way um, back from a family visit in Dayton, Ohio. Yeah, you know, I was I was kind of oblivious in college. I wasn't a great student. I didn't really have a lot of direction. So I feel like I, I kind of look back and think, like, there's a lot of stuff I missed because I was just an airhead and I was – too busy, you know, I don't know, chasing girls or whatever, you know, trying trying to wake up before, you know, at a reasonable hour. But yeah, Uptown Oxford is interesting. I mean, it's obviously not going to be as big as like if you go to uh, Austin, you know, UT Austin, or if you go to Madison where University of Wisconsin is, but there's this kind of hustle and bustle uptown. And there's a lot of little, little, lot of really great places to eat and just kind of hang out. So some of my friends, I used to do this thing called a food crawl. And in my book, I met, I think I use actually used the term food, food crawl um, that uh, you know, we would go to Bruno's for a slice of pizza. And there was a time where Bruno's pizza, you could get two slices for under a dollar, believe it or not. That's how, how long ago it was. Uh, and you could pull $5 out of the ATM and then uh, go to Bagel and Deli and have a, you know, kick-ass astronomically good, you know, 
uh, bagel sandwich. And of course, you know, I didn't gain any weight eating all the food back then and polish it off with a beer and go to bed. So I think about the kind of the carefree moments of that. Um, I, I kind of realized this as an outsider, probably five years later, I'm sitting watching the NBA uh, playoffs and Wally Zerbiak is a rookie. And if, if I remember right, it was, you know, he's with the Timberwolves. So they're playing Scottie Pippen, the Houston Rockets in the first round of the playoffs. And I said to you know, my wife, my girlfriend at the time, Bianca, I said, you know, this guy was probably, it was a Saturday morning or like it was Saturday at maybe 1130 noon. I was like, he was probably like sleeping in his dorm this time a year ago, getting ready to go uptown and have a slice of pizza. And now he's playing against Scottie Pippen in the NBA playoffs. That's kind of trippy. So, um, yeah, I mean, tons of memories and probably tons of memories I forgot, but it was just kind of a great place to sort of, it was a little bit bucolic and a little bit urban at times when everybody was on campus. And despite being kind of in the middle of nowhere between Ohio and Indiana, there was, you know, some some good bands, some good music. And that's, I think that's probably similar to what a lot of people remember at college. That was, that's kind of a big piece of it. <laughs> Studying, not so much. So you have an MBA in marketing from University of Illinois, Chicago. What about marketing interested you so much? Well, I think uh, I was in sales for a while and I, I think I'm just kind of attuned to I, th I think the one thing that's underrated in business, and, and you learn this or you don't learn it in, in sales, is that relationships are really important. And you think about, okay, look, look so, so take Pearl Jam. You know, they're a rock and roll band. But, okay, so long ago they didn't want to, they, they tried and failed to get around Ticketmaster, but they've structured their fan base, you know, as a business, but as a, I don't know, maybe it's no different than, I don't know, the Ohio State um, Boosters Club that, you know, if you're a diehard fan, you've been to 30 concerts, there's kind of a hierarchy based on loyalty that you will get a better seat than, or you, can, you know, you kind of opt for better seats than someone who isn't really a fan or who's been to one show. And that they also make it so that, you know, if I get two tickets and I've got front row tickets, I can't just sell them. I've got to go pick them up. We'll call. So I think that's a really brilliant marketing strategy, whether they would call it that or not, that really values their fans or the customer. And I think that businesses... I've always kind of been fascinated with small and medium-sized businesses and even creative ventures where people do that. So, uh, you know, I, I published my book independently through a publisher called Atmosphere Press. You know, I published this book about Chicago and sort of the heavy lifting is to try to get Chicago to know I wrote a book about Chicago and the Chicago music scene. So, you know, I've kind of taken a lot of those skills and just sort of like try to build a relationship with the music scene here and you know, people, meet people I don't know and have them know about my book. And I don't know, I just feel like it's marketing is really, if it's done right, it's it's less about sales it's more about a conversation and a relationship that you have uh, with, you know, whoever you're interacting with, whether it's customers or, you know, your university and you're building bridges with alumni and students, like all those things are important. And I think it's really, if you value the people and you think about ways of sort of having a message and reminding people that message that that's, that's kind of what fascinates me. And also the storytelling aspect is probably what I'm getting at that there's a storytelling aspect that, you know, whether we know it or not, you know, we can think about um, the storytelling that comes from, you know, Geico and the cavemen when they did the cavemen commercials or, you know, the, the gecko who got a thicker English accent the more they used him. You know, those are funny, but that's that's storytelling. I think that's important, too. So I read you worked in nine to five before you decided to become a full time writer. How hard was that transition to make? Well, it was kind of thrown upon me because uh, I kept getting. Uh, I work for a series of medium-sized businesses, and I say one that medium-sized businesses or small corporations, the way they're different from closely held small businesses or big corporations is, 
I think they tend to be a little bit more in turmoil. Like I, I've talked to friends of mine who are everything from like finance people to graphic designers. And I, like, I've got a friend who's a graphic designer, I think at like Blue Cross Blue Shield. And he's like, you know, they kind of let me do what I need to do. And I get my review once a year and they tell me to do a good job and I get a raise and, you know, they kind of let me do what I need to do. And it's, you know, that was now that he's, you know, kind of building the family and buying a home, you know, stability matters with a lot of the medium sized companies I work for, small, small, medium sized companies. Like I kept getting like bounced out. Like I, I was pretty good in sales. And to give you an example, like my last corporate job in 2013 was actually, I got let go on Halloween at the end of my best sales month ever when I sold currencies. And a lot of my clients were like manufacturers who made like machines that make things and they got parts in Germany or, you know, uh, you know, machines they buy in the UK and they need to pay for those in pounds. So not to bore your audience with what I did, but I built some pretty good relationships with, the yacht, with some yacht brokers in, you know, Fort Lauderdale, Miami area. I flew down there with Franco chocolates and sent them nice things and they did business with me. And I think because of political reasons, I got bounced out. So like when that happens four or five times, you are like, you're thinking that you're doing everything you need to do to be good in, in a corporate job. You know, you're innovative, you think outside the box and you're still not valued, then what else do you do? And I think I, I had been writing basically part-time for ESPN, just kind of doing a story about every month or a couple of stories a quarter. And just kind of said, well, I guess this corporate thing does this corp, corporate America doesn't want me and I'm not going to stop writing. So maybe I need to kind of hone in and transition to do some project work and kind of make that my nine to five, even if it's, you know, 11 to two some days or, you know, eight to eight to noon or whatever. It was kind of all over the place for a while, but it wasn't, I guess, because I'm probably not, um, you know, I'm not Don Draper. I'm not kind of a perfect cor corporate citizen. It, it just sort of worked out and. I look for those opportunities and, you know, that's, that's, I, I've taken my sort of my sales purview, prospecting, building relationships to, to pitching articles to editors that I don't know. And what I'll, last thing I'll say is like, when you're in the, in the corporate world and you're in sales and you're asking companies for money to cut you a check for whatever, $10,000 or to do a transaction and you get used to that pitching an editor who might say no to you on a story is not a big deal. You know, you're not going to get your, your heart broken and say, yeah, not interested right now. Or, you know, we're not, we're doing too many baseball stories. No, thank you. Like that's just the name of the game. And uh, yeah, I think being creative, people don't give it cr credit to creative people that a lot of times you're very entrepreneurial, whether you make sculptures or you write or you paint and sell your paintings, you know, I mean, either you do it as a hobby or you have to be entrepreneurial. And I think those, um, those skills are kind of learned on the ground. So it wasn't really a tough transition for me. It was kind of, you know, there's a little bit of what do I, what do, I do now or what do I do next, but it all worked out. And cause I, I kept at it and decided I wanted to write just to write and, you know, kept putting it out there. So why sports writing opposed to other disciplines? You know, there's two, two parts of it. I was just interested in sports. And I think I wrote my first article for ESPN for, for page two. I don't know if you remember page two, it was kind of the quirky, weird stories. Uh, would hit page two and you know espn was uh owned by disney so i kind of joked that you know that if they're going to promote the the jonas brothers and they want to just do a story on the jonas brothers i don't know shooting around with you know lebron or russell westbrook like they're going to put that story there so of course then they need to cover like some real musical artists not just the jonas brothers so i pitched a couple quirky stories to them and i think it was just like i was blogging to keep myself sane you know, just sports rants not like play-by-play -play or fantasy stuff just kind of like you know, I like this player and I think they get a bad rap or I mean, the Cubs are going to win the world. I think I had one, one blog in like 2000, 
nine after the Cubs got bought by the Rickets. And it's like, you know, the Cubs are going to win the World Series. Trust me, it's going to take a few years. I was right. We were all right. And just did that to be sane while I was working all the sales jobs and, you know, just trying to keep my head about me. And I had a couple of people say, you know, I think my eight friends that I begged from back home to read my stuff said, yeah, you're actually a pretty good writer. Maybe you should write for write for a living. And I thought, oh, that yeah, that would be that'll be the day. <laughs> but then I just, you know, I made a goal to try to get published in the next five years. And I probably made that goal in 2010 and then blew through that goal within about 18 months. And, you know, once you get your first article in ESPN, you, you have both the thought that you're never going to do it again. And or how can I, you know, what's my next article going to be about? So I just kind of saw that through and and put my feelers out there and, again, built some relationships. But going way back, uh, my first sports article I wrote in the fourth grade for the school paper uh, about chess because uh, I think this, I want to say it was the winter of 1981. It snowed like hell in Pennsylvania and we weren't, there was, there was too much snow to go outside for recess. So we got stuck inside and all of a sudden everybody in my fourth grade class, mostly boys, but some girls too, got crazy about chess. Like it became an obsession. So when the Blair Mill Beagle said, you know, we need articles from students in fourth grade, I wrote an article about uh, the chess scene and, and that probably started it off. I kind of just dabbled a little bit and thought it was fun and cool. And again, wasn't a great student and didn't major in journalism, but I guess the spirit of it came, it kept with me and eventually found my way to, to do it as a grown up. You know, even I probably should have grown up right now. Uh, still doing the the fourth grade, uh, my fourth grade gig, but just a little bit better, I think. It's awesome. I remember in the Navy, there was this guy, and he actually ended up going on Jay Leno's show when Jay Leno came out to the carrier. Mm-hmm. He could play 10 chess games at once. He just, you'd have the, oh, 10 boards, and he just walked down mm-hmm. the line, and, and every, it was incredible to watch, and they put him on the Tonight Show. That was pretty cool. So yeah, when I was uh, at college, I was in the Cap Alpha Order fraternity, and we we had like the most podunk, crappy house on campus. But it was basically what we call two towers. It was like two three story buildings, and there was a breezeway in the middle. And I remember um, one of the guys who was pledging his big brother made him, um, and he actually liked doing this. Uh, this is my friend Dave Dave Not- Marino Notcherson. He's an editor over the Wall Street Journal now. Uh, so he had to play two, two, uh, there's two guys in two separate buildings playing chess and he had to run. So I would move my pawn and he would have to, it wasn't me, but like, let's say I'm playing, he would have to run down on the other side of the building and move that, uh, that piece and then wait for that guy's move and then move, run to the other side of the building. And he did that. I'm sure he burned a lot of calories, but played mm-hmm. a whole chess game that way and got a kick out of it. You know, and you didn't have cell phones back then to take pictures. You had to remember what the what what yeah. move was was made or whatever you know whatever square <laughs> so uh yeah that's my little chess story there chess is we it's kind of a gentle person sport or an aristocrat sport but I, I kind of think that there's a lot of crazy people play play chess you know and maybe those are two stories right there so what led you to bring your work to forbes well um i knew somebody who was writing there um howard cole who writes about the dodgers primarily in baseball um, just kind of get, connect with him online. And I think, uh, so I had been writing for ESPN as a contributor for about six years. And then when that kind of, you know, kind of um, run its course, I wrote for for Rolling Stone for a little bit under two years, covering primarily baseball and football. So I I, I got kind of in cahoots with them in the fall of 2016. I, I pitched the sports editor at Rolling Stone, the new sports editor at the time, who was actually Cubs fan from Chicago. So he didn't like my first story idea, but but nonetheless, his ears were open to do some things. So I got to cover the the 16 and the 17 World Series. Actually, went out to LA to cover the 
uh, with the Dodgers stadium to cover it. And then when that petered out, I, I kind of saw the writing on the wall when um, Penske bought Rolling Stone and was rebranding. They bought it from Jan Wenner and the, and the people who ran it and were kind of rebranding and sort of just tightening up their, their mission and really going straight hardcore into music. And they weren't as interested in peripheral stuff like sports as a, a thing of us, you know, kind of a rung of pop culture. So I just kind of looked around and talked to some people and, and you know, chatted with Howard Cole a little bit and. I think we might have done a Skype at the time, but yeah, he just kind of introduced me to the editor and Forbes kind of runs more like a block, like they bring on seasoned writers and as long as I do sports, I can do whatever I want. So I don't have to pitch stories to the editor, which is kind of cool, but um, you also got to look for your own stories too. So it kind of brings back the entrepreneurship piece of it. Uh, and I'll write about, you know, things that interest me, but you know, I've gotten to interview some really big names like Tom Brady and Shaq and Billie Jean King and Lindsey Vaughn, but I've interviewed, you know, marathon runners and people who do different Red Bull sports like surfers and, you know, like cliff divers. And I try to keep it interesting. And there's also a little bit of a, a business aspect to it, too. So I'm, I'm very interested in, you know, if you're uh, an ex-NFL player and you're doing some cool stuff in real estate, you know, maybe not what everybody else is doing, but you've got a, an entrepreneurship or business aspect to what you're doing now. And some people do it while they're still while they're still playing. I find that interesting, so I like to kind of talk about off the field stuff, and that's obviously something that fits Forbes, because uh, you're not going to go, you know, as a sports fan, you're not going to go to Forbes for your play by play primarily, and that's not really what they want, you know. But if you find out tomorrow that I don't know, you know, LeBron is dropping a single with Drake, you know, and you know, you might want to cover it in 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 a, a magazine like Forbes or you know something that's not straight Rolling Stone music, not straight sports ESPN, kind of where a couple of things can connect and you can sort of story tell a little bit. So, yeah, I mean, I just kind of right place, right time. And I've been doing that since about May of 2018. Nice. So like me, a lot of work goes into interviewing guests. Uh, based on your list, you've interviewed countless members of the professional sports community. How mm -hmm. do you mentally prepare before speaking? With them? I, to me, I just keep it conversational. I mean, I think it's become so routine that I don't prepare. I like I prepare questions, but they're just kind of, again, like conversational. It's not, you know, what do I need, really need to ask this person? What, how do I, you know, I never want to get a gotcha story. And I don't do, I don't do that anyway. Like I don't, I'm not going to ask somebody a personal question because I'm not Jim Gray and I'm also not, you know, Stephen A and I'll never be as good as Dick Schaap was. So uh, I try to respect people's privacy and what they want to talk about and, you know, uh, Tom Brady wanted to talk about his new brand back in January when I, when I spoke to him. And I think I was lucky to get that interview and we just kept it conversational. And then I think if you keep it conversational, you get what I, I call our gifts so that you have something that pops up that you didn't even think about. That's awesome for your story. Uh, to give you an example, when I was doing uh, for ESPN for a while, I, I interviewed aging rock stars about their sports anchoring. So Got to interview Billy Corgan from Smashing Pumpkins when he was doing his first pro wrestling league. Uh, you know, different different aging rock stars. I, I decided around my, my birthday, um, I wanted to try to see if I could interview Noel Gallagher, who had just, you know, broken up with Oasis and was doing his own thing. And, you know, it took a little uh, detective work, but I, I hooked up the interview and I know that he's being into sports. I know he's a big Man City fan. But I noticed also that all the music videos that he was putting out at the time, and I think he still does this, have an undercurrent of sports. There was one music video where there's kind of like a chase involving um, 
he hired some world-class uh, skateboarder whose name I forget now. And there's another one that is about a relationship and, you know, there's a boxing match and basically the guy is getting clocked in the face by his girlfriend. And I said to him, you know, tell me about your sports. You got kind of a heavy duty sports fetish going on here or something like that. We talked about that. And I, and I did ask him, like, do you like any American sports? And I thought he would probably say no, or, you know, I don't know, or uh, American sports suck or something like that. But he said, you know, I really actually like the NFL. And um, he, I think he talked about the fact that he stays up late, even though he doesn't live quite as much of like a rock star as he used to. But, you know, his, uh, you know, two in the morning there is when we're all watching football here on a Sunday. So he he said, you know, yeah, I'm a, I love watching the NFL with a couple of F-bombs in there, too. But I think English people like to watch NFL football because I think they're really fascinated with these guys in helmets, these plastic helmets and pads crashing into each other you know, every play. Yeah. And, and, you know, just the bright colors and the impact, probably there's something special about it that if, if you didn't grow up with it, you're like, wow, this is really, this is, you know, battle on the field. So um, it was cool to get, you know, I just asked him opening a question about American sports and he, he gave that to me and that made a great point in the article that I didn't even really think about uh, including, but of course I included it because he, he told that story. Okay. Duval nation. We're going to go ahead and take a small break right here, but we'll be right back with the conclusion of this interview with Andy Fry. May I suggest you take this time to refresh that drink and take some super long, deep breaths. You know, Cluzo style. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Give a couple friends of the show your attention, and we will be right back. What if I told you about a group of elite college athletes who compete in 35 different sports at one of the toughest institutions in the nation? For them, it's not about name, image, and licensing or any other kind of major endorsement deal. Because at the end of the day, their ultimate goal is to serve their country. This is Carl Darden. I'm the host of Navy Sports Central, and I'm talking about the athlete to attend the United States Naval Academy. These young men and women represent the best our country has to offer. They compete at a high level on both the national and world stage, and their stories have mostly gone untold. I'm here to change all of that. So please, join me, Carl Darden, on Navy Sports Central, wherever you get your podcasts to learn more about these incredible athletes and our nation's future leaders. Duval Nation, Derek and Mindy Duval here to talk about Jerky Pro, the standard in premium beef jerky products. The Derek Duval Show and Derek and Mindy's Fun With Movies is proud to be sponsored by the team at Jerky Pro. As a veteran, I am always the first to support veteran-owned businesses. Setting up shop in 1987 and founded by military and paramilitary veterans, they have set the bar for how beef jerky is processed, flavored, packaged, and sold. With strict quality control standards, Jerky Pro offers many flavors that are sure to please any beef jerky connoisseur. From the standard original flavor to honey glazed, peppered, teriyaki, sweet barbecue, or if you're brave enough, the fierce red hot, there are many flavors guaranteed to entice your palate. Offered in various sized packaging, Use promo code DUVAL37, all in capital letters, at checkout to receive a 5% discount. Remember, folks, if your beef jerky is not making your mouth water, then it's not Jerky Pro Beef Jerky. Jerky Pro, the standard in premium beef jerky products. Teachers, do you ever have these feelings or have been told these things? If you want Kleenex for your classroom, maybe you should think about buying your own, with your own money. You get the summer off, you can have a second job. Do you really need a pay raise? 
Oh, do you need to use the restroom? Maybe you can do that in the three minutes while students are changing classes. Boy, sure hope your room doesn't descend into Lord of the Flies in that time. Oh, things are going pretty good for one. Surprise! Budget cuts! Well, you're in luck because we've got a book just for you. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Kinder, educator, speaker, and author of Untold Teaching Truths. I invite you to purchase my book and join this journey as we talk about the wild world of public education. Part memoir, part strategy. It is available on BookBaby, Amazon, or wherever books are sold. Teach on Warriors. We've got this. Hey, this is Patrick Baker, and you are listening to The Derek Duvall Show. Check out my new single, Sorrow, available on all major streaming platforms. And you can check my site out at patrickbakermusic.com. Don't leave my heart Three years in the making and countless amounts of rage later. It's the third annual Film Rage Krampus special. Yay! Yeah. With our very special guest, the god of rage himself, Casey the Nerdy Photographer. Hans Gruber had this to say. I first met Krampus in uh, a Bavarian beer hall in the mid-90s. Santa's head elf, Ernest J. Keebler, Ernie, to his closest friends, said... I haven't seen hairy balls like that since, uh, well, <laughs> let's just say it's been a long time. Is it true? Will there be Krampus's hairy balls? Yep. Don't miss the event of the holiday season. Three years in the making. Gather the children and grandparents around the Krampus podcast listening bag and get ready for... Film Rage 3rd Annual Krampus Special! Streaming live starting December 28th, 2022, everywhere. Look for Film Rage Podcast where you find your podcasts and feel the rage! Janae Sergio, arriving. Hello everyone, this is Janae Sergio, life coach, combat veteran, and best-selling author. I invite you to purchase my new book, Perfectly Flawed, A Veteran's Journey from Homeless to Hero. In these pages, you will learn about the lowest struggles of my life to the absolute triumphs that have made me the strong woman I am today. Follow along as I talk about homelessness, my naval role in Operation Enduring Freedom, navigating insurmountable odds, and how I dealt with and overcame them. You can find Perfectly Flawed on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. Welcome back to episode 111 of the Dark Duvall Show. Let's get right back to it with the conclusion of our interview with sports journalist Andy Fry. So the entire list of who you've interviewed can be found on the website. In your opinion, who stands shoulder above the rest in terms of the best interview you ever secured and why? Yeah, I don't know. There's probably about 20 of them that are really great. I'm not trying to say, you know, I'm not trying to give you a stock answer, but... Uh, I've interviewed Billie Jean King a couple times, and she's super talkative. And uh, both times I've interviewed her, her PR people have come on and said, you know, we got to wrap it up because Billie needs to go. And then she's like, no, I'm talking here. I want to talk more <laughs> about what talking about. So um, the last time I talked to her, it was it was the same day as Serena Williams' last match, although it was in the afternoon, and she was all excited about getting to see her play. And, 
you know, hoping she, that she would win the next match. But so she says to me, and she's she's like, "Are you here?" And I mean, I said, "You mean like at the U.S. at the U.S. Open at Flushing?" No, I'm in home in Chicago. And she's like, "Oh, that's too bad," because you know, like I, I got the sense that she wanted to like sit and talk to me. I mean, I think she's friendly like this with everybody, but she wanted to shoot the shit with you know people while watching the match and have a beer or two. And she just seems like that kind of person. So she's one of been one of the better ones. But again, like Adam Wainwright, um, you know, I have nothing in common with the dude. He's a, a lifer at the St. Louis Cardinals, the team I hate the most, who, uh, you know, when their fans come to town, they buy up all the tickets so I can't get into the game. And, you know, I'm a vegetarian and he's like, he eats meat, not like he has ribs for breakfast. Like he's that dude. And I think he's pretty, pretty politically conservative. We have this great conversation about uh, just kind of the Cardinals nation. And I asked him some questions about like, what's, you know, talk about the fans, talk about that whole thing. Because I said, I feel like the Cardinals fans are as diehard as Yankees fans. And, you know, what is that like? And how do you connect with that? And he also told me what it was like that, what, what it's like to have people like Bob Gibson in the clubhouse and how it gets quiet when you have all these Titans coming in, you know, you've got great players on the team, but there's a certain uh, history and respect that for as much as I might not like the Cardinals, you know, that is part of that club and it, and it makes it, you know, it's got a, it's a great story in baseball, I think. So those are two, but I mean, there's, there's, probably 15, 20 others that I've just had great conversations with that, you know, it's just a conversation. It's not even an interview. I, I don't feel like it's an interview. So, uh, yeah, uh, Brandy Chastain, uh, the U.S. soccer player, you know, scored the historic goal in 99. Talked to her a couple times, and, you know, it's just like shooting the breeze with your friend about the games over the weekend, you know, what did you watch? And I think she's a Man City fan, too, as I am. So, uh, yeah, but, you know, there's – Ask me a, a different day, and I can probably remember, you know, another 15 that I had awesome conversations with. And, you know, I'm sort of lucky that that's how it, it tends to be. First athlete I ever interviewed on my show was Jason White, uh, mm -hmm. Heisman Trophy winner for Oklahoma. And okay. it was – I was a little – not going to lie to you. First time I, I spoke to him, a little intimidated. But he had the most, you know, calming demeanor about him that we just – like you said, just had a very – casual conversation i got to talk to him about you know name image you know likeness is going on in, in in the ncaa right now he had gave a great in answer about that and yeah it was, after that i just i just started going after athletes and i've yeah. had like Jordan weber on the show and, and another uh you know maddie musselman was on there and they're just great people to talk to and they just you know athletes and musicians are pretty much my probably my most favorite things to interview what about the boz have you interviewed the boz i have not what? Brian Bosworth. I don't know if you want the boss or you want Brian Bosworth. <laughs> joke about that they're two different, two different people, but yeah, I mean, I find him fascinating the way he kind of, you know, he was like he was like the villain in the in the mid '80s. Mm -hmm. He kind of crafted that, and obviously he's not that person. But um, yeah, I like to interview that too. And then he's also like a diehard Oklahoma Texas hater too. So yeah, you should you should try to hunt him down and just talk Oklahoma with him. Tell you know, tell his whoever his management is that like we're only going to talk about how great Oklahoma is. You know, come on <laughs> your show. You got to send me a link when you do that show. All right. So, based on that list, if you'd have to pick it up there, just put it on there. Who's left interview that you want to interview? All right. So I'm going to I'm going to totally surprise you, but I'm kind of fascinated with it. I think that I kind of want to interview Tanya Harding, uh, in part because I saw you know the basically the comedy biopic they did, I Tanya. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, you know, again, probably someone I have a different world. I have nothing in common with. 
And I did, I do think for, you know, whatever she might've done wrong, I think she did kind of get the shaft a little bit in her career. But uh, yeah, she's also got like a, she's like a heavy duty, uh, got a landscaping and like uh, outdoor business. Uh, you know, there's, so there's a business angle there. I was thinking, I was kind of after the movie, I watched it maybe about two months ago. I was like, yeah, maybe she'd like, see if I could find a, a PR person or like a, a manager for Tanya Harding and just interview her. And like, same thing, I wouldn't be like, so tell me about why that incident happened. Like, I'm not going to go there. Right. Like, well, so gotcha question. I want to be like, if you want to talk about your career and how you kind of got crapped on and weren't treated fairly, we could talk about that. But, you know, you know, you're still, you're still around and you're doing things. So let's talk about what you're doing now. And, you know, some of your memories from skating that would, that's on my list. I mean, obviously there's going to be people like Michael Jordan and LeBron that we'd always, all love to get and David Beckham and Serena Williams. So, you know, keep my ears open for when they're available perhaps, but I don't really have any premonitions about, excuse me, um, next conquest. I got to interview a guy who was a blind sprinter during the Paralympics last year. And I think his name was David Brown. He was like, uh, you know, he's just like as confident as any athlete. Um, he, the way that blind sprinters work is they, they have a tandem partner that they're tethered to on the wrist so that it's not their coach, but they basically someone who's not blind runs with them to kind of keep them going straight or, maybe have them veer one way or another to stay on track, literally. And he was like, I was like, you know, asking him, so, you know, what do you see for the, the Paralympics? Like, you want a gold medal? He's like, yeah, I'm just going to go out there, dominate, you know. He, like, he's basically, he didn't say that. He's like, basically, I'm going to go to Tokyo and kick some ass because that's how I roll. Yeah, that was kind of refreshing to hear because you, you could be like, so what's it like to be blind and running? That must be really difficult. And that he wasn't <laughs> even, that wasn't his personality at all. Right. He wasn't obnoxious either, but it was just like, you know, he's, He's as intense as any top athlete you could ever you could ever interview, and that was refreshing to see that that exists outside of what we consider like the mainstream sports. So, I am a huge fan. Uh, obviously, I'm, I've mentioned it earlier. I, I have always wanted to. Uh, Michael Jordan is just you know on another planet. But one yeah. of my favorite things I read was the conditions that he did for making that documentary series, The Last Dance, sure. was that basically said if I do this and you do it the way that I think you're going to do it. I'll never have to do another interview the rest of my life. And I think yeah. that kind of that kind of sold it to him. And I've, I, I, that's kind of stuck in my brain a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I guess you know, there's, I'm sure that at his level, you get asked to explain stuff that you've explained a million times. Uh, I thought he did yeah. a pretty good job. And I mean, I watched that thing, that series three times. Um, I'm right. not really sure why Pat, well, Scottie Pippen thinks he got kind of misrepresented. Because I talked to Scottie Pippen right after that, and I was told one or two things I was not allowed to ask about was the last dance. And I wasn't going to um, right. necessarily. I, mean, I kind of would have liked to, but we ended up talking about the 92 Dream Team, and I didn't realize how much Scottie Pippen, like that was a big deal and a big thing in his life to be part of that team. Because, mm -hmm. you know, it's 30 years ago now, I kind of forget about it, and you think, like, there's been so many great players since then. And you kind of accept that the U.S. is always dominant. But back then, we, you know, I, I was alive... And you were too when the Olympics went from amateur to, you know, let's let some professionals in and see how that works. Yeah. That was a completely new thing. Yeah, Jordan, I, you know, I mean, I hear all kinds of stories about him and they presented, you know, like rumors about things that he said or did. And I don't know if you remember this. So during the 97 championship season, I think it was 97, not 96, but it's definitely one of the first two seasons. During the playoffs, he was taking piano lessons. And sort of the narrative was, like we would get an update from – Luke Canellos and the local um, you know, sportscasters who were covering the Bulls anyway were talking about, yeah, he took, you know, I talked to his uh, his piano teacher and yada, yada, and he's getting really good. So, like, the narrative was 
Michael Jordan's so competitive that, you know, if he keeps playing piano like this, he could be a real legitimately a, a concert pianist two, three, five years from now. We'd like we, he may be a future Rachmaninoff. And that was what we thought about Jordan because we saw that on the court every time he got the basketball. You know, he missed a few shots, but not that many. And then right. he, he was just a maestro with that. So you assume that, I don't know, I guess we all assume that maybe what he was going to be getting into management, it would go better than it has. And, you know, if he took up carpentry, he'd be the world's greatest trim carpentry, ex, you know, craftsman because he's so right. good at what he does. So competitive. But, yeah, I mean, that aspect just fascinates me, even besides the fact he's won all this stuff. I just, how do you be that perfect and, um, you know, just competent? And it seems like it's all come from his drive and just his drive and his drive and his drive and needing to be perfect and working everything out. And, you know, all the stories about him getting bumped around and working out and building up his muscles and becoming that much better of a basketball player and basically indestructible. Like there's so many stories about Jordan. I don't want to bore your listeners, but man, you know, I live in Chicago. So we hear, we hear probably more than you do. And you want to come out, hang out, out here for a summer. We can probably, uh, you know, get lots of cool stories on little anecdotes about Jordan that, you know, could make up, make for another multi episode series, the last dance too. I'm, I'm convinced that the, the story, the storyboard is out there for sure. Absolutely. hundred percent agree. So I want to talk to you about your new book that dropped on June 1st of 2022, 90 days in the nineties. Now this is a real departure from sports. Where did the idea to write this book come from? Well, I will, uh, without spoiling too much, there is some sports folklore in there. Of course, there's, you know, right. something that happens at a bar with a Cubs fan and, you know, um, definitely lots of talk about how great the Bulls were. So if you hate the Bulls, you know, tough cookies, you're going to have to sit through it. But uh, I, you know, as a writer, I think you either, you just, you you decide that you have a, I think a lot of people think I have a great idea for a book. And it's just kind of being a thinking person like, oh, this would be a, make a great book. As a writer, you want to either either think you have a book in you or you want, you want to see if you can pull off actually writing a book. And that's a big thing. Like, how can I write? How can I be a subject matter expert on something or come up with a story and come up with 70 to 100,000 words about it? So I love music just as much as I love sports, probably even more so. You know, I just had like, I I guess I was thinking about maybe writing a book about a sports writer, but I didn't really know what I was going to write. So I, I got this idea one day. I was just taking a walk, I think, Easter weekend of 2017, about five years ago plus. And uh, I was listening to my 90s playlist on Spotify. I probably only had about 30 of them at the time. Now I've got like 60 or 70 playlists. But uh, I think I was just, I don't even remember what, I was thinking about a show that I went to. I was thinking like, wouldn't it be great to time travel to go back to that show or to go see that show I didn't see, like James Brown playing the House of Blues in Chicago right when it opened up. Or to see the last Smashing Pumpkins show before they, you know, they broke up the first time. And uh, as as a writer, I think I do this less now than I used to. But I used to write stuff down, or at least like write notes in my phone. Like you get an idea, you're psyched about it, you write it down so you don't forget, and then you, you before you know it, you're standing in the middle of a sidewalk typing things for 15 minutes in your phone. So I had this idea that I thought was a great idea, but I decided that you know if I care about this in two or three weeks, and I think I picked June first. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to actually start writing this and see if I can do something with it and try not to give up. And, you know, aside from that, wouldn't it be great to go back to the nineties to see some live music? Uh, I thought, well, Chicago is a great music town. It's kind of underrated. 
And nobody's really written a book about how great Chicago is either as a city. I mean, yeah, there's probably some books in the 20th century about Chicago. Uh, but I, I just kind of wanted to write a book about a little bit about the sports scene, but a lot about the music scene and just sort of what it's like to hang out in Chicago. And, you know, I was in my 20s and the 90s. So that was sort of my coming of age period, you know, when I was an adult and had my own apartment and got to do, you know, when you move out of the house, it just feels like a whole new world. So, yeah, I just uh, I had a couple different ideas and themes and I thought, well, what if I had this person who is about my age now who time travels back to the 1990s? And maybe in the sort of a spirit of a, a John Hughes or a, a John Cusack movie that, you know, there's some emotional reasons they go back in time and they don't really deal with their, they kind of go back to fix some problems or redo some things, but they don't really deal with their shit. And then that there's another subplot to that. So, yeah, I, I created this character named Darby. She's a record store owner. She moves back to Chicago kind of after her life fails in New York, inherits her her favorite uncle's record store. And so she kind of feels guilty that she lost touch with him as you know when he after after he died and that she gets back into her music nostalgia and loving chicago and here's about this great this um train line called the gray line so on the front of my book there's a train car it looks like the l uh, as we call it in chicago and jumps on this thing and there's a record there's a stop under a record store she goes back to the 1990s right about the time that she left chicago and then kind of gets caught up too much in the scene you know having fun going to see shows going to see bands watching the Bulls, you know, getting back into the Cubs folklore and just persisting in Chicago and kind of gets too wrapped up in the fun of that to really deal with their stuff, which eventually, you know, there's a, as any good novel, there's a, you know, there's a, a twist and a subplot that kind of makes her deal with the plot at hand. But yeah, it was just, you know, everything I love and everything I know in Chicago just, you know, it took five years, but it was a fun process nonetheless. That's awesome. What has the response to the book been like? <laughs> Well, you know, when you're an independent writer and you publish through a small house, it's not a, like a small publishing house. It's not like your book re gets released and all of a sudden the New York Times is going to review it. Like I'm trying to get the reader in New City to take a take a look at it. But I've got I've, I've sold, you know, I've sold quite a few. I, I just kind of put it on. I think I just people knew I was writing a book and I set up a website. And one day I'm, I get an order for a book. Like I didn't, My book hadn't been released yet, but I guess I considered a pre-order. And then another one happened. I was like, well, I guess the website works. Like, I should probably let the cat out of the bag. And this was probably in April. And I knew the book was probably, if it came out on time, was going to be launched June 1st. And kind of put out on my socials, like, hey, I'm publishing this book. It's about, you know, rock and roll and time travel in the 90s. It's called 90 Days in the 90s, a rock and roll time travel story. I think I gave him some bits about what the plot was about. And I think um, there's, a, you know, people who uh, like music. Obviously, people who I've got most of my orders from outside Chicago, but but Gen Xers who like music, who love Pearl Jam or they like Radiohead or whatever, you know, they're into pop culture. Whether you watched, uh, you know, whether you're really Nirvana or you watched Friend, Friends and Beverly Hills 90210, which is two shows I didn't watch. I think people have, you know, there's a nostalgia about past decades, and it's just it, the reception has been pretty well. I've, I've sold, um, you know. I don't know, several hundred copies so far, not being with a major publisher and, um, you know, started to sell it locally at like arts fairs and stuff. And literally I'll set up my table and before my table set up, I got someone buying two books and saying, oh, this sounds great. Like I want to go back to the nineties. So yeah, it's been a good reception sort of for the crowd that I wrote it for, but, uh, you know, the, the, the press part of it is a work in process progress. So I'm, I'm still working on that and doing some like kind of DIY PR and, but yeah, so far so good. And, I guess that's what happens when it's a, a first book. 
you can kind of figure out what you're doing when you're writing it. You kind of figure out your way to promote it, even if you know who your audience is, and it just grows from there. That's awesome. So uh, I do want to ask you real quick about your sports podcast. Uh, oh. How is that coming along, and uh, where the idea to come to do that? Well, I guess everyone who writes about sports does a little bit of a, spot, a sports podcast now and again. I actually uh, don't do it that actively. I sort of put a, put it on pause in the spring. Um, my most recent interview was the one with Tom Brady, where we talked about his brand, and we talked about football too. But uh, you know, I don't really like the editing part of it. And I'm you know I'm a writer. I'm not a radio guy. So I did it for I did 31 episodes. I interviewed Tom Brady and Lindsey Vaughn and Julius Irving. You know, my basketball hero, Dr. J, and uh, a number of different people. And not everybody that I've interviewed obviously has been on on the podcast. Like to give you another example, like Billie Jean King was great this conversation, but she, like me, she's all over the place. So I would have had to edit the hell out of the thing for you to kind of be clued into what she was talking about. So there's not an episode with her interview, but there's there's plenty of others. And, you know, it just was kind of a side gig I did for a little while. It was, you know, basically put some professional content out there. I guess maybe some of the greatest hits from my interview career and that's it, you know. But, uh, yeah, I'm not looking to be the next Joe Rogan or anything. So just a, just a, a project for a while. Fair enough. Uh, I always like to throw one fun question as we get towards start widening this down, and that is, in your opinion, what is the best sports film? Well, uh, all right, so I'm going to split it in two ways. There's there's probably a best sports documentary and a best – I'm talking like TV, like not TV but a movie. I think right. probably the best sports documentary is Hoop Dreams, and maybe a little biased because it took place in Chicago and it took place sort of when I was a young man. But I think it's – there's not too many – three-hour movies that you can watch and not be bored and not say, well, I'll watch, you know, if you're watching on your TV at home, like, I'll watch the rest of this tomorrow. Like, Hoop Dreams isn't that kind of movie. You're going to stay up too late to watch it. Kind of like the Shawshank Redemption or The Godfather. It's, you know, even though it's a documentary, the storytelling is so great that I think that definitely has to be the best sports documentary of all time. I don't know. Again, with, like, what you asked me about my interviews, I, there's, like, 20 different you know drama films that i could probably say um you know whether we go into like the the comedies like happy gilmore or uh <laughs> caddyshack um i'll go with drama on the, on this one too i think today since you asked me today and my opinion might change next week uh i i love chariots of fire came out in 1981 it's an it was an independently funded film uh, I'm so so boggles my mind that a film made in England in 1981 won Best Picture and kind of ran the table here in the U.S. But for anybody who's not seen Chariots of Fire, it's about you know two different men from two different walks of life who running is their passion. And I think they get ready, if I remember right, for the 1924 Olympics. And one is a, a Scottish guy who's super religious who doesn't run on Sunday, but he's you know he believes that running he pleases God when he runs, but he he's, he runs earnestly. It's not you know, for show. And then there's a, another character who's, who's a Jewish uh, Englishman who, when asked about why do you run, he says, I run as a defense, a defense against being Jewish. And they're both driven for very, I don't know, the movie's just so deep. And so, you know, if you value diversity, like one thing about this movie, it was way ahead of its time. But again, the storytelling is great. The characters are great. There's nobody super famous in the movie that you would recognize and it doesn't matter. So, uh, yeah, Chariots of Fire and Hoop Dreams, I think, you know, are probably the two best sports movies, movies of all time. Awesome. All right, so what's next for Andy? 
Well, I don't know. I got a couple ideas for some other books. Um, probably going to do a Chicago trilogy, but right for right now, I'm focusing on promoting the book because it, it kind of needs the story needs to be told about my book. I feel like I still need people in Chicago who love Chicago, who love Chicago music and this music scene to know about it. So I don't mind, you know, playing the Pied Piper for my own book and just kind of promoting it for a while. So uh, that's my project right now. And got some interviews this month. Let me see. I'm not sure. I got uh, Josie Altador, the, the soccer player, is going to talk to me about the World Cup. I'm waiting for questions back from him. And I've talked to a couple of marathoners and different athletes. But um, yeah, just, you know, doing what I usually do and promoting my book and waiting for it to get really, really cold here and break out the cross-country skis, I suppose. But, uh, <laughs> you know, right. yeah, just living. As we continue to wind this interview down, what would be the best way for my listeners to follow your adventures online? Yeah, I mean, you go to my website, andyfry.com. It's a fry with an E. Um, I'm on Twitter and, and Insta at Sporty Fry. So it's Sporty and then F-R-Y-E, like the boot company. I don't, own, I don't own the leather company. I'm not part of that dynasty, but it's spelled <laughs> the same way. So, uh, yeah, pretty active on Twitter and you know Instagram. We're kind of still building it as most um, clueless Gen Xers are. But uh, yeah, and, and if you go to sportyfry.com, that'll actually take you to my, uh, basically my column on Forbes. And, you know, there's all kinds of stories there that you can thumb through. And if you want to buy the book, you go to 90 days, you can go to my website, but you go to 90daysinthe90s.com and uh, you can order for me. I'll, I'll sign a copy for you or any music fan that you need to buy it for for the holidays. But my book's also on Amazon too and all the other places that you would buy books. Awesome. So I end my interviews with my favorite question. Okay. The question is this, if the entire planet was listening to this broadcast, what would be the one thing you want to say to the people of Earth? Oh, geez. Everybody chill out and be nice to each other. You know, we don't need to fight so much. Oh, and since I'm an Eagles fan, I'll just say Dallas sucks. <laughs> Love it. All right. The book is 90 Days in the 90s, a rock and roll time travel story available on Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, wherever books are sold. Andy, congratulations on the book. Thank best you. of luck to your future endeavors. Thanks for having me on. Good talking to you. And just like that, Duval Nation, we come to the end of episode 111. I want to thank Andy for taking the time to come on the show and speak with me. What a truly cool guy. And I am so glad that he and I got the chance to connect. Maybe, folks, if we are lucky, we might get to hear more from him down the road. Tune in again next time as we showcase another extraordinary person. I have a really good one coming up in a few days, so be sure to keep checking your favorite podcast streaming channel for that episode to drop. All right, folks, a few housekeeping items before we close out today. Uh, have you had a chance to check out our store on TeePublic? We have everything from magnets, stickers, and mugs. Plus, we have a carefully curated collection of T-shirts put together by myself and Mrs. Duvall. Be sure to go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com. Look on the banner on the left. It says Merch. Click that and you'll be taken to our store on TeePublic. And of course, once again, we want to thank TeePublic for being such great partners. This is the last episode we are dropping before Christmas of 2022. So on behalf of the entire team here at the Derek Duvall Show, I want to say to each and every one of you listening, enjoy these moments with loved ones. After the last few years, we deserve a moment to stop and decompress. However, for some, the holidays are not a time of peace and comfort, but a time of turmoil and sadness. Duval Nation, if any one of you are needing to speak to someone this holiday season, please reach out to a friend, a religious leader, or a crisis counselor. Together, they will help you navigate these stormy waters. Dial 988 to get in touch with the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Remember, folks, 
I love my listeners, and I want you all to be safe. On behalf of myself and Mindy Duvall, Nadala Glawan, and have a prosperous new year. No star, God bless, and see you next time, Planet Earth. This has been a recording of The Derek Duvall Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com, for links to merchandise and to explore past episodes. Please find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Derek Duvall Show.